Hey, Phil. Hey, Laurie. Welcome to What We've Been Watching, man, and listeners as well. Now, listeners, this may very well be the penultimate What We've Been Watching for quite some time. Gasp. I know. Well, the thing is, all this annoying stuff gets in the way, you know. What, you mean life? life? Yeah, like me having another baby and actually having to put bread on the table, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Just annoying little things like that uh, get in the way of doing fun things like free podcasts. So it may well be that this is, yeah, the second to last what we've been watching for quite some time, unless we, I don't know, suddenly become really rich or something, Phil. That's possible, isn't it? <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, it is. All right. Keep living the dream, Laurie. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Well, but fortunately, we'll be going out on a high, because today we are living up to one of the promises we made to a listener, Alistair. We're going to be reviewing four films that he suggested all in one go, and they are, Phil? Well, I'm going to be doing Buried, the Ryan Reynolds film, and Steve Jobs, the Danny Boyle film, Correct. starring Michael Fassbender. Very good. And I will be watching, uh, reviewing rather, Indiana Jones, The Temple of Doom, and also 007 James Bond, Licensed to Kill, Timothy Dalton style. Is it Dalton? It is, the second Dalton. one of his. So those are our four films. Keep in touch on superbaileybros at gmail.com and at superbaileybros on Twitter. We'll put in a couple of emails in this episode in between two reviews. But other than that, we better get cracking. Who's up first this week? I think I'm going to go first with Buried. So is this like a Ryan Reynolds tour de force, a bit like that Tom Hardy film Lock? Yeah, that's actually quite a good comparison because this is literally Ryan Reynolds in a box for a whole length of a movie. It doesn't ever really move away from him. He is front and centre and the only other voices and little bits of characterizations come from a phone and that is it. I wonder who thought, oh, that Ryan Reynolds guy, yeah, he's got so much depth to him. This is going to be his sort of Citizen Kane moment or something. The funny thing is, I know you don't have the high opinion of Ryan Reynolds ever since uh, Deadpool, but he is impressive in this film, is I he? think. He genuinely is engaging, and he conveys the sort of terror and uh, just just frightened expression that you would have being buried underground for no apparent reason. And I think this film knows what it is it knows what it's trying to do it's trying to be a really tight thriller horror-esque you've been buried alive what on earth is that life how how what do you what do you think when you're in that box and i'm sure plenty of people have that as a nightmare in their dreams or something like that and it plays out well and it still manages to make it an engaging movie rather than sort of a 10 minute ah isn't this freaky isn't this scary because slowly he realizes that he's got some matches in his pocket and he's got a phone right at the other end of the box oh right and how on earth is he going to reach this phone at the end of the end of the coffin he's going to have to kind of squeeze himself round and somehow manage to move himself around so that he can reach it and how do you squeeze yourself round in a coffin 
how do you get your body to kind of contort so you I mean you sound like you're actually asking me that question Phil the answer is I don't know well this film shows you all that thought process all that angst all that tension what do you do when sand starts to seep in Mm. and even maybe a snake appears in the box it's it's kind of these random little crazy bits that keep the film engaging and interesting and fills in the gaps between these phone calls that he's making and between these sort of little bits of the puzzle that he's putting together yeah it is a different film from Locke, but it has that same sort of one-man show aspect to it. What about that phone booth, for example, where there were supporting characters, but that was Colin Farrell trapped in a, a phone box, basically? I mean, I've always liked phone booth in a sort <laughs> really? of weird way, because I like the idea. It's a concept movie, isn't it? Yeah, And yeah. this is a concept movie. It's much like Locke. Can it be interesting watching a guy in a car make phone calls? The answer is yes. Well, and my key question, is it real-time, or is it uh, dramatic? It's both. It's both. I think that's the fair way to describe it. You see him sort of in episodes, but it feels very much present and you feel this mounting tension. He gets a call from some guys who say he needs to do something within a certain time frame or else X, Y, Z is going to happen. And so it, it just puts you very nicely in the frame of mind of how on earth do you deal with this situation? How would you not freak out and panic? And it is quite thrilling and unexpected and it surprises you again and again. And Ryan Reynolds does a good job. He's convincing. He's he's not his normal sort of fast-talking wise-ass, can I say that? Yes. Instead, he's this sort of just terrified guy who doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't understand why or how. Or how do you even begin to process this? It's funny. I mean, all I'm doing right now, as you're talking, Phil, is trying to picture the inevitable twist. And listeners, I haven't seen this film, so this is utterly uneducated as a guest but is he under like a theme park i'm trying to think what all the things he could be underneath <laughs> and that be the twist at the end <laughs> well what do you what, what do you want to guess i don't know maybe he's under a water park or something and, and then he emerges and you know a kid smacks him in the head coming down a slide or something uh, well maybe a, I'll, and then it turns into a comedy right at the end maybe i'll tell you what the deal is after okay, off right. air but i think this film is pretty good and it's quite a good thriller and it's it's scary in an unusual way because there's no monster. There's no yeah. sort of horrible man with a knife. Instead, you're just in a, in this situation. How do you deal with it? I think I'm going to give this film a B. Wow. Okay. Well, and as you point out, this is a fear that many people have. Some, it's the kind of dream that people might have when they're sweating and nervous and wake up. I'm not in a box. I'm not in a box. Uh, do, can anyone enjoy this film or will some people be too freaked out by it? I'm kind of claustrophobic, but I, well, I feel a little bit awkward taking on that title. I don't think I quite deserve it. But I do feel a little bit uncomfortable when I'm boxed in. I don't like it when the duvet gets a bit tight yeah, around yeah, me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I found this film uncomfortable. So I imagine if, you're, if you do genuinely suffer from that fear of enclosed spaces and all you have had this nightmare, I really don't think this film is for you because, it, 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 yeah, it's uncomfortable watching this, this guy. But I think it's thrilling. I think it's exciting and it's not too long. It doesn't overstay its welcome. So I think it's worth a go. There we go. A B from Phil. Bzzz. What's that? A bee. Oh, right. <laughs> really good. Shall I do mine? Yes. Why don't I start with James Bond 007, License to Kill. I want you to know this is nothing personal. It's purely business. Killing me won't stop anything, Sanchez. See you in hell! This private vendetta of yours could easily compromise Her Majesty's government. You're going after Sanchez, aren't you? Are you crazy? Make a sound, and you're dead. No! 
your license to kill is revoked. Effective immediately. In my business, you prepare for the unexpected. Problem solved. I'm more of a problem eliminator. <laughs> This is where it ends, Commander. It's got to be stopped. Phil, I think we've established that you're not really a James Bond fan, are you? No, I haven't really seen many. What was and one you saw that you really didn't like? From Russia with Love, and I think I probably annoyed a lot of people because I didn't really understand it. James Bond is such an interesting franchise, listeners, because it attracts devotees uh, for each new phase. So On Her Majesty's Secret Service, I might have got that wrong, I think is the George Lazenby one. And he was the model guy who only did one. And that sort of changed James Bond. And it suddenly became lots of fast cuts, sped up action. But then he didn't want to come back. So they hired Roger Moore again. And then after Roger Moore, they hired Timothy Dalton to do The Living Daylight. Are you familiar with Dalton at all? I, the only thing I've ever seen Timothy Dalton in is as the evil shopman mayor guy in uh, Hot Fuzz. In Hot Fuzz, yeah. And you know, part of the reason they would have hired him is because he's been James Bond. And I think people felt with The Living Daylight that they were getting the Bond, you know, the real Ian Fleming's Bond. Ian Fleming's Bond is back. Everyone says that with every they new James Bond. They always say that. This is what I mean. It attracts devotees for each new phase. But it's because... Dalton wasn't cheesy. He's an interesting actor. He's from the stage, really. He's sort of almost Shakespearean. And just looking at the guy's face, he has a he immediately carries a depth and gravitas that someone like Roger Moore didn't. Roger Moore was a great sort of suave guy, but you didn't find yourself thinking he's got deep emotions buried underneath. You just think, well, this guy is what's on the surface. Whereas Dalton brought that in, and combining that with a more serious approach to the filmmaking uh, and slightly more serious scripts as well. People felt it was this was the kind of gritty James Bond that you know that really needed to be made, and I slightly agree with that. I think it really is gritty. The Living Daylights is a surprisingly gritty take, and License to a Kill is quite dark as well. You may have picked it up there from the trailer, but we open with James Bond and Felix Leiter, who is not uh, the charming guy from the Daniel Craig films at this point. He, he's the same character, completely different realization. Yeah, no, not him. Uh, <laughs> he's getting married, and James Bond is the best man. Oh, right, of course. And in the, of course. And in the process of it, you know, there's a bit of a daring chase and they end up parachuting into the wedding because they're both super cool agents. And So cool, yeah. <laughs> you know, you think if Roger Moore had done that, that would be a really cheesy, campy scene, but they somehow managed to play it, yes, for dazzling, a dazzling intro sequence and yet somehow make it serious. And there's a sense that James Bond really has friends and personal connections in this film in a way that he doesn't in, all, in most of the other Bond franchises. That's an interesting observation. He really doesn't seem to have friends in the other films. Other than M, you know, Judy Dench or, or the older guy, and Q, he sort of just attracts people for the course of the film and then lets them go, doesn't he? Yeah. And they tried to do that a bit with Daniel Craig, you know, the idea that he really loved Vesper in Casino Royale. But this is a James Bond who's got a darkness residing in him that is tied to the emotions. And you get the sense with this film, based on the way the plot plays out that now that he's opened up his heart and let people into it he kind of becomes a man on a mission because of course what happens is a drugs baron uh, this guy sanchez turns up uh takes felix leiter away throws into a shark uh, they kill his new wife um and felix leiter is terribly damaged by the shark and james bond finds him there's a kind of general ruckus and basically through a series of circumstances i won't spoil it he loses his license to kill because he's shown himself to be too loose a cannon too emotional exactly that's right uh so what he does of course is like yeah whatever forget that m and he starts his own personal vendetta off the grid 
off the record, illegally doing business, using all his connections and friends uh, to ingratiate himself into this drug smuggling cartel with Sanchez and acting as if he's an assassin, but at the same time trying to uncover this whole operation, trying to double cross him, meeting new Bond girls. Pam Bouvier, played by Carrie Lowell, as uh, she's a CIA agent, uh, and also Lupe Lamora, that's Sanchez's girlfriend, played by Talisa Soto, and Robert Davy or Davey is uh, Franz Sanchez. And overall, listeners, I think this is this is a really interesting film because of all those key differences. Dalton is a Bond who has depth and sophistication of a kind that probably isn't seen amongst any of the other Bonds. Sean Connery, in many ways, is a refined brute. I think people would say. Uh, Pierce Brosnan is just kind of a ludicrous uh, 90s action man who does one-liners, isn't he? <laughs> Daniel Craig is just a thug, I think. Everyone knows that, with a posh voice. Whereas Dalton, it seems like a kind of gentleman, but a lethal one. The kind of guy who'd sit in, a, a genuinely be a guy in a tuxedo in a fine restaurant, do you, do you poisoning of, someone across the table. Are you suggesting then that he is the best Bond? No, I just think he's a distinctive Bond. And this film plays out in all those kind of ways. And also massively aided by quite spectacular set pieces. Phil, you laughed as we watched the trailer to see a sequence in which an oil tanker goes up onto uh, two wheels, balancing sort of precariously in a Teetering. diagonal way. Teetering, yeah, thank you. While someone shoots a bazooka underneath it. Uh, which- I just thought the guy didn't look like he was aiming for it he looked like he was trying to do a really cool trick shot no. underneath the truck <laughs> that's probably true yeah but it's it's impressive stuff and there were some quite groundbreaking over the top sequences like there's some people parachuting from one plane to the other uh, generally there are some quite impressive moments the problem for me is that i just can't take james bond seriously enough and it was almost too plain to me how much they wanted this to be a tonal shift away from what they'd done previously. And I think you can tell that although they were happy with Dalton, I believe, the producers, the Broccolis, the fact that Pierce Brosnan was the next Bond, bringing back a level of campiness showed that although it was interesting, it perhaps didn't test quite right with some of the James Bond audience. So, well, it needs a little bit of fun to it. I don't think anyone really knows what the magic formula is, which is why it changes so much with every new instalment. I think, I think James Bond is just one of those characters which needs to reflect the, an action shift. I think maybe what's happened with Daniel Craig is the fact that it's kind of played out that Jason Bourne style of action and we're kind of waiting for the new wave of action film to come out so that then James Bond can kind of fill that that's my theory anyway yeah possibly but anyway for me it gets a b rather like yours phil so it's good but it, i didn't think it was great no what is interestingly your favorite bond i like pierce brosnan because he's the first james bond i ever saw and what is your favorite bond film probably tomorrow never dies <laughs> <laughs> the news story one. Oh. I know, it's a stupid bad guy, but I, the thing is, because it occupies that sort of childish place in my memory as the first sort of real sort of action hero I'd ever seen, it, it just doesn't really exist on the same plane as other films for me. I hate that actor who plays the villain. Jonathan in that. Price. I hate his character so much that when I see him in Pirates of the Caribbean, I still hate him, even though he's just a dad. He's, he's not that popular an actor. A lot of people don't like him. He gets right under my skin like really nothing weird, though, else. because he was in Brazil. Have you seen that film, Terry Gilliam? I haven't seen it, but I heard lots about it. He's yeah. the lead in that, and it, was, he, it seems like a really odd choice, but he's pretty good in it, man. He, he, that's a good sort of antidote to take <laughs> after tomorrow never dies. Anyway, should we do some emails, and then you can do your next? Yes, sounds good. 
Now, actually, looking through the emails, Phil, I can see that I was mistaken, and we actually read most of them out on the Super Bailey Bros show uh, on Monday. Oh, but that's okay, isn't it? Just a couple, then, really quick, and we'll launch straight back in. So, first one here from Esther. She got in touch after Stephen's wife vocally defended her opinion of Harry Potter 3, Prisoner of Azkaban, as the worst in the series. She says, at Super Belly Bros, agree with Steve's wife. Harry Potter 3 wastes time on extra rubbish, e.g. elongated scene of Harry riding Buckbeak. Boo all Harry Potter films. No, I think it's good. I think it shows that he's uh, isolated, isn't it? He's he he only really feels joy when he's escaped from everything. I think that's the kind of scene where a screenwriter will breathe a sigh of great relief as well there, Esther, because that's one of the few things that feels like a cinema moment, having a boy riding this hippogriff thing gliding across a lake, dipping his hand in the lake even. In fact, that's something they do. I've been to the Harry Potter studio tour. Have you been there, Phil? No, I haven't, no. So it's really interesting. There's a bit where you sit, Judith and I queued forever, I wish we hadn't bothered now, to have a go on a broomstick and they do a green screen thing and they show you flying around <laughs> and this, like, computerised journey. Magical. And what they, they, what the, there's a lady there actually directing you. It's really strange. You get directed while you're doing it and they say to you, why don't you dip your hand in the water now? And so obviously that moment has really kind of succeeded in people's minds. I think I think that's actually quite iconic, especially Harry's ridiculous little woohoo moment as well. Woo-hoo! It's I like he runs out there. Like it. It's so hard to do it. He yells instantly, just nothing there. <laughs> so funny that guy. Play a clip from that. I think. Do you want me to? I'll put that a little shout in here. <laughs> Can I be a little bit annoying though? With what? I don't think Harry puts his water in the hand in the water. I think it's Buckbeak puts his oh dips his toe, toe in the in water. water. Mm. Sorry, Phil, you're quite right. But my point is, it's really memorable. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I, I I still would state my flag in the ground, whatever phrase is right. Uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban is the best one. And I think there's a lot more extra rubbish in the later films. I mean, what, the burning of the burrow sequence? What's that? That is entire rubbish. And that it's stupid rubbish as well, because it's bo- a boring scene that doesn't have any relevance to anything that happens. It's maybe, just maybe, maybe, we talk, maybe we talk about that film when we do it on what we're We watching. should review those David Yates We should ones. do entire, like, a rundown when of we these say big we do, franchises. I mean, I'm saying this might be ending after next week, so what are you going to do? We'll fit it in somewhere. All right, okay. Next, the little message here from the Pixel Bro. Really short and sweet. Plus one to Laurie for the holiday. It's oh, an- somebody gave you a plus one. Uh, absolutely I right. was expecting a flood of uh, minus ones. No, Maybe no one listened to no that No one yet. has criticised me yet. They, he says, plus one to Laurie for the holiday. It's a Nancy Myers con, and I don't mind who knows it. <laughs> Strong words from the Pixel Bro. And I think you'll know if you heard my views, and I very much agree. He also adds, I recently watched all three Madagascar films. A good trilogy, he says. Can you cover those? They are much funnier than they deserve to be. I have seen bits and bobs of Madagascar and it has always made me smile more than I suspected. So, yes. It's funny, I felt sort of the opposite when I caught bits of the <laughs> first The Madagascar more you see it, you're just kind of turning <laughs> up. And, it, well, it's just the first one. There's something really odd and tacky about the animation. It, it feels like they haven't quite figured it out yet. See, I think that's funny because, you know, when you ages and ages and ages ago on the main podcast, you talked about animation, how it's too smooth. There's too much yeah, sort of yeah, fluidity yeah. to it. And so it looks odd compared to 2D animation. I think Madagascar was actively trying to keep that sort of jerkiness and... Uh, well, perhaps non-fluidity. I'm not. Maybe I'm not talking about the the motions. I'm more talking about the camera work. You know, the way the fake camera pans around and the actual just building of the models themselves. It looks like something that should belong on a 
a 1990s Windows computer game. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh, as for, uh, yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's do this. If we I am Madagascar. a lion. I am a lion. Uh, listeners, don't be afraid to email in. We won't make fun of everyone who <laughs> <laughs> emails in. Uh, but thank you very much, Pixel Bro, for getting in touch. If you want to email in, you can reach us at superbabybros at gmail.com or tweet us at superbabybros on Twitter. Yes, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I realised I didn't really give you enough to say. Not really, no. You but can I quite like that. Ad. We need to work on that. I think we need to build up to the kind of, you can email us on... And then you blah, 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 blah. And then you could tweet us at... This is a good conversation not to have on the podcast. <laughs> Shut up. Let's schedule that one. Shut Let's up. put a pin in that one. <laughs> just to use a phrase from the film you're about to review. How about that from a segue? Can we just put a pin in this? Do you remember that? Maybe mm. don't. Steve Jobs, Phil, are you going to do it? Steve Jobs. What do you do? You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen. So how come, 10 times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius? What do you do? Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. I hear you've been worse than usual this morning. I didn't think that was possible. It's a system error. Fix it. Fix it? Yeah. We're not a pit crew at Daytona. This can't be fixed in seconds. You didn't have seconds. You had three weeks. The universe was created in a third of that time. Well, someday you'll have to tell us how you did it. (laughs) I'm begging you to manage expectations out there. You see how this reminds you of a friendly face? It's warm and it's playful and inviting and it needs to say hello. If you keep alienating people for no reason, there's be no one left for it to say hello to. Your Apple stock was worth $441 million, while your daughter and her mother are on welfare. She's not my daughter! You must be able to see that she looks like you. You're issuing contradictory instructions, you're insubordinate, you make people miserable. Even if that were true. Doesn't sound that diabolical to me. So Steve Jobs is that film, Laurie. And I know you're probably aware of this, but I'm going to do it for the listeners. I'm, I'm going to have a conversation with you for the sake of the listeners. Don't Steve Jobs. tell people that we're doing that. It's supposed to be natural. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm tearing it down by its pillars, you know. Steve Jobs was that film which got a lot of attention during the Sony email leak. Do you remember that? I do, Because yeah. suddenly you had all these emails coming out from Aaron Sorkin, two Sony executives, sort of discussing, oh, I've done that stupid Steve Jobs movie. I banged it out and here you go, it's done. And, oh, Danny Boyle's going to direct whatever. And there was all this sort of awkward behind-the-scenes-ness of this film. And suddenly this sort of, oh, this such a special film about Steve Jobs, the kind of the real untold story, actually seems like Aaron Sorkin just kind of did it on a weekend just to get it off his plate. Seriously. And he's like, yeah, just give me my money and I'll just... And it's, and it's kind of bizarre. But what's so bizarre about this film is you would never have guessed that this is kind of a bit of a, a lazy effort from Aaron Sorkin having seen the final product. Now, you've seen this film, haven't but you? But then, I mean, you're only taking those emails at their word. Emails don't always represent people how they really are. I mean, he's a professional guy. There's no way he just... No, but like often the p- presentation of these writers, especially well-known writers like Aaron Sorkin, who's written lots of these films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Social Network, he's done A Few Good Men, he's a, a well-respected TV writer and everything like that, is you have this idea that they spent hours understanding the character and the, the mindset and they've put meaning into all of this. No, man, pros are cold-hearted beasts. Exactly, and they <laughs> just they knock it. Be. And they just knock it out. Yeah. But the thing is, is the film itself is actually quite a thoughtful piece and does actually have quite a pointed edge to it, deciding how to view Steve Jobs. 
What did you make of this film? Because you have seen this film, and I, I want to get your input. today, in fact, Phil. It's very fresh in my memory. Well, I was uh, surprised by the format. I thought it was going to be kind of an annoying biopic, and then it ended up being this weird three-act structure, almost play, using the dramatic device of, what is it, about 10 minutes before every product launch. Three major product launches in Steve Jobs' life, and uh, all the sort of behind-the-scenes stuff and all the people that he meets. Uh, using a bit of flashback uh, in in the process to stitch it together. And I thought that was quite cool, actually. I I was surprised. And there's a way that, because that's such an artificial construct, it made it feel like they could take liberties with the drama. So it really felt more cinematic than documentary-like, which is a good thing in my book. I completely agree. And that was the thing which I was struck by, because it wasn't really conveyed in any sort of the chat around it. Here we have these very odd like you say before the big show before the big product launch whatever it is you see Steve Jobs played by Michael Fassbender roaming around the halls trying to sort out little odd problems and issues and trying to sort of patch things up with relationships and and people from his past as he's sort of frantically focused and and blinkered to what he's trying to achieve in this moment this major thing in his life this this thing which will revolutionize his his image his brand his products the world whatever fill in the blanks he is trying to change things and then there's all these little bits getting in the way and he's trying to sift through them all the film is very focused i think which is surprising because Compared to another Steve Jobs film, which I saw quite near to watching this film, which had Ashlyn Kutcher in it. Do you remember that one? No, I have no idea what Anton you're Anton Kutcher, about. as our dad would say. Yeah. That was called Jobs, just Jobs. He played Steve Jobs, and it was just abysmal. It's a very meandering... That film, which you might have described, a biopic, which was sort of in love with the guy. Yeah. This is the absolute opposite of it. Danny Boyle, I think, does a really good job directing it. And he makes it sort of feel frenzied, I think. It's quite clever. It's a good choice, a surprising choice, Danny Boyle. And it is, like you say, just people sort of standing around chatting. There's very little action. And instead, it's all about character drama and the tensions. And it gets right to the heart of it. It doesn't take time sort of introducing them to you, to this character, that character. It just sort of plonks you right in the middle of it, right in the heart of the moment and that intensity. And all the while, it still feels like it's about Steve Jobs and no one else. Yeah. And I think that's impressive. I think, and the performances are really strong. I mean, Michael Fassbender, almost, it's not even just that he's the central character, it's almost all the words that are on screen come out of his mouth. And his Steve Jobs is almost painful to watch in his intensity and inward lookingness and his inability to interface, to use a technical term there, for yeah. him, with any of the people around him. It's a great performance. And then Kate Winslet as well. As his assistant, She's yeah. She's astonishing. I actually didn't even recognize, even though I knew she was in the film, I didn't recognize her to begin with. She's great. And then you've also got Seth Rogen as... I know, Seth Rogen actually doing something good and as, not hideous. As was or what, I can't remember. Steve Wozniak. Wozniak, that's mm. it, right. As the guy who's actually sort of behind the technical achievements of Apple. Well, they co-created it, didn't they? And he was the Apple II guy. Mm. And this, this film seems to highlight the fact that how is it that Steve Jobs is the, the, the face, the icon of Apple and, and he's the, the innovator, the genius behind it all. When actually, what has he done? What's, what is it that he contributed to these products? That's the line everyone remembers, isn't it? When uh, Steve Wozniak confronts him and says, you don't code, you, know, you don't build this stuff, so what do you do? I play the orchestra. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of interesting. It's quite an insightful angle onto the guy because you've got these sort of avid fans of Steve Jobs and then you've got these guys who just don't get it. Like, what's the fuss about? And this film seems to be kind of a, a fight between the two ideals. And I think the film isn't really saying either of those views are wrong. There is a sense in which she does nothing and there is a sense in which she does everything. And I think the film sort of balances those things out. 
It definitely reveals that he had a ruthlessness in the boardroom that is quite remarkable and almost inhumane in places. And there's a lot of the question of this guy's humanity on show. I think the film is all about contrast, isn't it? And my favourite kind of aspect of the film is you've got this this awkwardness with his daughter, maybe not daughter. Yeah. He says it's not, it's not my daughter. I think that was in the clip of that we had before before this. And then also you've got the idea that he wants computers to be friendly, so he insists on it saying hello. It has to say hello because computers are scary, but we want them to be friendly, and this is the first friendly computer. And you've got this kind of complete awkwardness of no reality in his human relationships, and yet when it comes to products, he completely seems to understand people. And it's just sort of this bizarre yeah. megalomaniac. It is a truly quite sort of terrifying performance from Michael Fassbender. Yeah. And I found it very interesting. And it kind of ties in with what I, I kind of feel about Steve Jobs. I find it a bit confusing how he's been revered so much. In fact, the, one of my uh, favourite comedians, Bill Bird, has like a bit on Steve Jobs, which maybe we could slip in at the end or something like that. Yeah, yeah, why not do that? But overall, I really like this film. And I think it is a really well-made film. And it's surprising how good it is when it feels like maybe behind the scenes it wasn't so, that revered. Yeah, but what happened there? Because it didn't get a good critical reception. It had an incredibly limited release. And if you hadn't seen the film or heard much about it, you would have assumed it was just a flop, I think. I think... I mean, it did get nominations, I believe. Well, okay, Winsett was nominated. Well, Golden Globes, I think she was, Screen Actors. Golden and then Aaron Sorkin, I think, got a, maybe got a Best Original Screenplay or something like that. But yeah, it was. it's almost like it was a bit embarrassing and they sort of pushed it away. Isn't that weird? Even yeah. though Danny Boyle, who's a, an Oscar-winning director and... Yeah, it's it's odd. It's odd all around. And yet here's this kind of bizarre, very tight, very focused film, which is actually really quite good. It's very well edited. Yeah, another unexplained, well, maybe not too unexplained, based on the Sony emails leak. Uh, Hollywood Mystery, what's the grade for you, Phil? For me, I'm going to say it's an A-. minus. I think it's a really well-made film, and I've thought about it quite a lot since. I think I might have to agree with you, actually. I would be more heading towards the B-plus thing, because I don't think it's very enjoyable, because it's breathless and uh, yeah, exhausting. I mean, that is something worth saying is Aaron Sorkin is in full Aaron Sorkin mode where everyone is hyper intelligent and absolutely eloquent. I'm quite jealous of them and maybe that's what I aspire to be <laughs> where I always say the perfect thing that's perfectly witty. There's a lot of talking and a lot of sarcasm and witticisms going on. And very biting humour. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Daniels is really good as well as this sort of mentor figure, John Scully from Apple as well, isn't he? Yeah, he's the Pepsi guy, isn't he? He comes in. That's right, the CEO. He comes in and he sort of says, oh, he, he approaches it like a businessman and Steve Jobs is all about the creative vision or whatever. And there's that kind of tension, but also support. It's very interesting relationships. And I also want to throw this at you because we talked about it before you began your review. Uh, Catherine Waterston, as, uh, I can't remember his, the name, but the woman who his is allegedly mother. his alleged daughter's mother. I think she's excellent. She doesn't have that much screen time, but she adds a complete, she adds an entire dimension to the film just with her own performance. This kind of like a weirdly fragile humanity feels unhinged and desperate in some ways. And you just feel Steve Jobs wanting to distance himself from everything that isn't spotless and clean and perfect. It's a very good performance, very assured, I thought. Listeners will know her probably most from Fantastic Beasts of West Pine Yes, she plays, oh, Paul Pantina Goldstein, Paul P. She says, Mr. Scamander. Yes, she does. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There we go. On to Temple of Doom. Let's do it. Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. If adventure has a name, it must be Indiana Jones. From Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. 
Jones and the Temple of Doom. You don't believe me. You will, Dr. Jones. Oh, creepy times, Phil. Yeah, this is the dark one, isn't it? The uh, the the darkest of the trilogy. The one we were forbidden to watch as uh, spiteful <laughs> youths. Mm. Uh, listeners, I imagine many, many, many of you will have seen Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark and The Last Crusade and The Temple of Doom. He's one of the most beloved characters all over the world. And as we say, this is generally regarded, I think, as the least successful of the three, especially here in the UK. And here's some factoids to throw you away that make it sound like I know what I'm talking about as opposed to just borrowing them from other people who've said them. <laughs> uh, I believe Quentin Tarantino is a big fan of The Temple of Doom and believes it's Steven Spielberg's best directed film. And I think it did better in the US generally, didn't it? Certainly grossed huge box office dollars. Well, I mean, it was not a failure, that's for sure. But I don't think it's critically considered the best one. And there are some odd things about it that just immediately stand out as different. I mean, you've got, and again, Phil, off air, just during the trailer, you were pointing out there are some slightly odd race issues uh, to do with this or could be construed that there are. And a lot of that's to a short round, his sort of Chinese sidekick, which reminds you a bit of Tintin, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Mm. And the sidekicks that Tintin picks up. Uh, and just some odd, odd sort of cultural things that seem a little bit out of place. But the basic premise... Uh, is to, in a mission to China, India picks up short round and they end up uh, in this tribe in northern India where the villagers explain to them that a sacred stone and some children have been taken away from the village and will India help them get them back. I think they mistake him for sh- uh, a god of s- some sort because of the way they come, come down a mountain on a... Um, uh, what is it? They, uh, it's a... How do you describe it? An inflatable raft? What's the, word? What's the phrase I'm looking for? <laughs> a raft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and, a, and a death-defying <laughs> escape earlier on. And then they uh, discover a sort of secret network of caves with an underground cult uh, who are involved in human sacrifice and the worship of these fabled stones, which do appear to have actual mythological powers attached to them. Isn't there a bit where some guy rips out somebody's heart? Yeah, something? exactly that kind of thing. That's a classic. He puts his uh, fingers over the heart in like a claw shape and pulls it out. He almost does it to Indy at one point. We're terrified of it. And there, people are put into trances. There's voodoo dolls. There's all kinds of bizarre uh, things going on. And I think, you know, I mean, Raiders of the Lost Ark, everyone is familiar with the final scene in which it is revealed that there are spiritual powers at work and people famously plasticine heads Melt get, down, yeah. <laughs> yeah, get melted. And, but there was something that felt a lot more oppressive, and there is something that feels a lot more oppressive about these, in quote, spiritual forces at work in this film because it, it just, it, the whole film is suffused with a sense of malice and desperation and darkness, really. It's a cliched word to use, but it's definitely there, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's interesting that you make that comparison because I think Indiana Jones work best when there's sort of hints of something uh, uh, supernaturally powerful. But actually, when it's it, you almost want it that everyone's sort of chasing the supernatural power, but nobody actually can wield it. That's the thing. Yeah. Whereas I feel like in this uh, Temple of the Doom, Temple of the Doom. <laughs> uh, Temple of Doom, you've got people kind of using it or pursuing evil acts in a kind of weird, bizarre way rather than trying to harness it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I know you, you sort of use the power for their own non-spiritual ends, whereas mm. this is all about the kind of mythology surrounding these stones. I, I agree with you there, Phil. And there's another side of it as well, which is that, and this is an interesting 
at a point just on Han, not Han Solo, Harrison Ford being cast. <laughs> <laughs> because anything about Han Solo's character is someone who is constantly around the Jedi and these sort of weird sort of religious things going on, but he doesn't really get it. And, and he's like, he belittles it all, he, he even belittles though he's it. got evidence of he it. He doesn't really want much to do with it. And I was, I always got that impression from Indiana Jones as well. Harrison Ford kind of brings that with him to the character. So although he's an archaeologist and everything else, you can tell he just wants to be an adventurer and there's this, I always thought there was a sense in which he doesn't really respect <laughs> the myths and things that surround this stuff. He just thinks of them as archaeological curiosities, doesn't he? His He's, own intellect intrigues him with it. But I don't. Yeah. I always got the sense that he wants to be that stay-at-home professor. Yeah. But he kind of keeps on getting pulled into it. Exactly, that's right. And, and that's kind of necessary. Whereas in this film, he is pulled into this literal underworld of stuff. I mean, there's one point where Indy is put into a trance himself. I, I don't know if you remember that. And he has to get burned in order to bring him out of it. And so there is just something different about the tonal makeup of this film. And of course, uh, a uh, can I call them an Indiana Jones heroine? Because that kind of is the case, isn't it? The girl interest. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's Kate Capshaw as Willie Scott. And I think she is widely regarded as one of the most annoying uh, female protagonists just of all time, but especially for an Indiana Jones film. She's sort of does nothing to advance the sort of women independence movement does it no she's always screaming and bothered about her nails and and indiana jones just looks frustrated with her all the time and there's you know there's all these kind of background rumors and stories that spielberg was in love with her at the time and he'd just been going through a divorce and there's all this trouble off camera which maybe had something to do with the way that she was used in the film but it doesn't make for particularly sympathetic viewing does it no but is it all bad no, I mean, it's got that classic uh, sense of dark adventure, uh, real stakes and fun. Even though you know Indy is going to emerge victorious, Spielberg is not someone to shy away from delving quite deep into unsettling territory. I mean, there's the bit that will always stay with me from this film, right from my early days as a youngster, is when he fights a hulking bad guy near a big rolling pin, basically. Do you remember mm. that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Spielberg is very good at knowing the limits that a filmmaker can go to to scare kids but not let the scariness overcome their sense of adventure and energy. And this film really plays right with that. Like you're right down to the wire all the way through. So in some ways, it's one of the best indie films because it's, it stands quite apart from the other two, which are a bit more lighthearted and fun on the whole. I can't necessarily say that I enjoy it that much. I find Kate Capshaw frustrating. And I'm just not really that into that kind of murky... Uh, world of mythology and stuff. I, I don't find it a particularly enjoyable thing to watch. You know, all that voodoo stuff, just not really up my street. So, uh, I, I don't know, man. Yeah. I think I prefer Sean Connery, the Sean Connery one, you know? Well, the, uh, yeah, a lot of people say that's a really bad film. It's what? just A lot of people do say that. And it's, it's super just fun, man. love for Connery and the sentiment just kind of makes them think it's great. But I agree with you. It is fun. I think it's really good. I think it's got good action scenes. in the blimp, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I like the, the tension... I, I like the fact that he's like, I know, Dad! And I, I think that's great. <laughs> I remember that, that last scene used to scare me. It terrified me when it had the blade that comes out. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was a very good bit of filmmaking. Lots of sound and, and kind of very restrained imagery. Anyway, that's not the film we're reviewing. <laughs> For me, The Temple of Doom gets B+. It's all on form. I just find it slightly less enjoyable than the others. And, and is that it. mostly the tone? Yeah, I think so, Phil. Yeah, well, and it's just a bit, it's a bit meaner. I think you would agree with that as well. I like the way that um, uh, Kate Capshaw's character is treated as a bit meaner. It's a bit mean-spirited. The way she just shrieks constantly. Like, there's no sort of, she doesn't appear to have any redeeming qualities, for example. Mm. And there's something, oh, it just, it doesn't sit that well with me. Quentin Tarantino likes it. If you like it too, you've got something with, in common with Quentin Tarantino. So there you go. <laughs> B plus from me. That's the end of what we've been watching this week.
But we'll be back next week with some great movies too. Yes, do check it out. And also check out the main podcast, Super Baby Bros in Movie Land. More Oscar films, more Oscar chat, more reviews, more good stuff. Yeah, they've been chock full of stuff, haven't they, recently, the Super Baby Bros episodes. So make sure you check it out. Every Monday, you can catch the main show. Yeah. Okay. Listeners, have a great week. We'll be with you again. Or have a great weekend if you're listening on Friday. We'll be with you again next week, possibly for a big finale. Hooray. Bye, guys. Bye-bye.